Please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Colossians chapter 1. And as the children are being dismissed, today is December 7th. I think some of us know what that date means. It was the day, December 7th, 1941, a day that would live in infamy. It was the day where the Japanese attacked and bombed Pearl Harbor, and some 2,000 um, men and women lost their lives. Another thousand were injured, and uh, it was uh, uh, an attack on our country, and it was that event that ended up projecting and hurling us, propelling us into the war. Now, up until that time, um, the United States was sitting on the sideline. I don't know how much you know of of history, but the United States wasn't getting ready to fight in the war. They knew about Nazism. They saw fascism going on. They saw the conflicts that were going on in Europe. Winston Churchill and and Great Britain were being attacked, being decimated. Churchill was constantly, uh, who was prime minister at that time, was constantly talking to uh, President Roosevelt saying, please help us, send people. And he goes, I can't get into a conflict. The people won't get behind that. I'm sorry. It's a European skirmish. We've decided to stay. Uh, over here. And it was that act that propelled, I mean, literally launched the United States into this huge conflict. And it was something, uh, something, an act so amazing and in some ways heinous that, that united the country in a way that had not been seen in modern times, that put people together that were, they were willing to sacrifice themselves for a cause greater than themselves. And every, almost every single family was affected in one way or another. And it united people to fight and join the, um, the other allies and help win the war. Matter of fact, it's in the movie Torah, 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 which is about World War II. Uh, one Japanese um, general is purported to have said, I fear that we have awakened a sleeping giant by attacking the United States, and that's exactly what happened. Because, you know, it's interesting. There's something about a cause that unites us, that motivates us, something that, that causes us to be awakened in ways that we have not yet experienced and puts people together and moves us forward to do things that we normally wouldn't otherwise do. But there's, you know, I think of wars, I think of uh, a lot of the different things that are going on in our culture and, and how people are uniting and people are protesting and, 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 and not unjustifiably in many instances that we see going on. And yet we see there's bad parts of it and there's good parts of it and people united and people separated. And, and yet I see what unites all of us together, regardless of our race, regardless of our tongue, regardless of our background, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he unites us together, and it's his name and what he has done and what he has accomplished that launches us forward in such a way. It propels us to go forth and live a life different than the one that we've lived in the past because of what Christ has done. We see this uh, illustrated in the life of the apostles. Some of them were uneducated, ordinary men, and yet they would be standing before rulers, testifying, even if it meant their life, about who Christ is. We see this change really worked out in the author, uh, one of the authors of this epistle, this letter, 
that we're reading today and we'll be studying in the next few months. Paul. Paul had been a religious teacher. He had been educated in the top schools, studied under the best professors. He was of the who's who of the religious Ivy League. And yet, we see his life taking in total 180. I mean, he is persecuting the very church of Jesus Christ because he believes it to be a perversion of Judaism. And so he is, he is, in essence, participating in the persecution and death of God's saints. And yet Christ appears to him, totally changes the trajectory of his life, and propels him into this ministry that he had not even, would, would have never even believed a few years earlier. And there's this, this message that Paul is, is speaking to us because it's a message that he himself lived out. And he is writing to this church at Colossae. And what he is writing to them helps propel them into living the life that God wants us to live. Not just then, but in the here and now. There are these graces, these virtues that he, he gives us, in essence, tent pegs to hold on to, to live by, to launch us into this life that God has for us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to see how these graces or virtues, if you will, launch us to live the life that God wants us to live. Because, you know, when, when World War II happened, there, it did about being, in essence, not just, it wasn't just a physical warfare, but it was an ideological warfare. Because Nazism, fascism, communism were all vying for preeminence. And we see that Christ himself is preeminent, and any other philosophy or thing that we hold on to must be struck down. And it's struck down by looking and seeing and beholding what Christ have done. Just as we were talking about all in, and I don't know if you saw, in, even in the diagrams that were there at first, there was an arrow pointing down. Because it's showing that God first loved us. We can't love one another until God, we understand that God first loved us and what he has done in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ propels us into this new life that God has for us and God gives us these virtues to help live this life that he has for us. So let's, let's uh, jump into our text, but before that, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are and what it is that you have done. I pray, Lord, that we might uncover and see the truth of who you are in a greater way, in such a way that our hearts are enamored by your person, by your work, knowing that you contain within yourself the offices of prophet, priest, and king, that you are our mediator, you are our ruler, you are the one who speaks truth to our lives, and may the truths that we comprehend May they propel us to live the life that you have purchased for us, that we might experience fullness of joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text. Hopefully you turned with me in your Bibles. We're going to be sticking pretty close to the text today. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, I'd try to look, out, look off someone if you can. Um, and I'll have the page numbers on there uh, if you need it. If you still need a Bible, just get up and go and walk to the back and grab one if you need to. Our text begins with Paul and Timothy. We remember that Timothy has is, is been, uh, as a, uh, a co-writer with Paul, probably his amanuensis uh, or secretary, if you will, writing down what Paul has written, uh, most probably. He starts off in verse 3 of our passage today. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. 
See, last week we started this series and we're calling it preeminent. It's looking what all of life looks like under the rule and reign of Christ. It is Christ who is our greatest motivator. And as I mentioned before, World War II showed us what happens when philosophy is married to power. It's a lust for preeminence in the world. However, however, each one must and will inevitably fall in the light of the person and work of what Christ has done. Because it is Christ who is preeminent. He is the one who has defeated the powers of sin, suffering, and Satan. He is the one who came to destroy the works of death and the devil. And he is the one who has given us true and abiding life. By looking at him, who he is, and what he has done, we are propelled forward in our walk with God. We are able to see him as the great creator God, the sustainer of the universe, the one who hung every star into the sky, who chiseled each mighty majestic mountain and hewed or hewn out every valley, orchestrated each ocean, and totally determined every desert. He is the mighty God who made every creature under heaven, and he is worthy of our trust, admiration, and worship. He is the preeminent one, and everything that we are, everything that we have, that we do, comes from him and him alone. We truly first love because he first loved us. Or we love, excuse me, because he first loved us. What we do, we do because of his loving action in Christ. There is something so invigorating, so inspiring about hearing the stories of others who are following him. That's what we have in this passage. Paul is saying, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith, that you've made God famous by your faith. We hear what's going on in you. And it inspires us. It awakens us helping you to see how committed you are, how your life has changed. Just yesterday, we had a meeting. We have a meeting of our ministry directors and coordinators, and we were downstairs, and there was a great number of people there, and we were sharing. And, and one uh, woman was sharing about what the change that God has done in her husband, how she's seen him become alive in a way that she's never seen before. She's seen a new commitment. She's seen this faith awakened. And when we hear those stories and how he is orchestrating his life to show the preeminence of Christ, and he's doing it in his finances, and he's doing it in how he does his time and how he raises his children, and we're seeing the Holy Spirit work in and through this man, it inspires us. That's why Paul is saying, we thank God when we hear of your faith. And what God is doing through you to show that you are all in. See, we have this, this wrong way of understanding faith. You know, there's a story about these, uh, these missionaries who were working with the Maasai people in uh, East Africa. And they were trying to translate uh, the Word of God into their language. And the question came up about the word faith. How do we translate the word faith? And they came up with a term that um, they had, as they learned the language, felt that was perfect for showing the word faith, and it meant to agree to. And the, this Messiah elder said, no, 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 that word is not a very good word. He said it's like a picture of a, of a white man holding a gun and getting ready to squeeze the trigger. He said only his eyes and his fingers took part in the act. He said we should find another word. He said, for a man really to believe, to have faith, is like a lion going after his prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and single blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. 
And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it in his arms, pulls it to himself and makes it part of himself. This is the way a lion kills. This is the way a man believes. That is what faith is. It's not just an agreement or pulling of a trigger. It's the understanding of every part of our being being a part of this. So what Paul is saying to us is that if we are to be propelled, and we need to understand that this life that God propels us into is a life of action, and, and, and it's a life of action by giving us a living faith. It's a living faith. He gives us a living faith. Now, this faith, uh, what is faith? What is faith? Sometimes it's easier to, we, we say the word, but we very rarely define it. And if we were to look up the biblical definition of faith, we would look on page 1007. That's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And it's, a, it's not a new definition. It's an ancient one. It's one that's been used for generations. It's, if you've been in church for any period of time, you've undoubtedly heard it. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of of things not seen. It is the assurance of things hoped for. This, this faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction within ourselves of things not seen. It's all of ourselves being committed passionately behind it. Now how do we get this faith? And how, what can we see from this passage? We see first of all that faith comes through faithful teachers. Faith comes through faithful teachers. This is where we see Paul, in verse 7, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. It is made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's a faithful teacher. He is one who's been teaching the Word of God. He helped plant this church. He continually taught the truths of God. That's what we are called to do. We have to realize that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Meaning we have to speak the truth in love. Christianity is not just about living and doing your own thing and not talking to other people about it. It is a confrontational, it is a proclamational truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That we are to proclaim the word of God. We can't just sit on the sideline and expect someone else to do it. We are a priesthood of all believers. We all have the task of proclaiming, confronting the truth of God's word with people. People need to hear the truth, and they won't respond to the truth until they hear it. That's what Paul says in in Romans chapter 10. It's Romans chapter 10 on page 946. Paul says by the Spirit, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And he goes on in verse, actually goes back in verse 14. We understand what he's talking about. He says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how they are to hear without someone preaching? And how they are to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We have to teach and preach and live the Word of God. Well, you say, well, I don't want to offend people. The gospel's offensive. It's straight up offensive. It's saying that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, and that we can't be saved in and of ourselves, that we have to repent of our sins and embrace the Savior, all of us alike. Well, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well, then you need to do something different because the gospel is going to hurt no one 
repeat, no one can remain objective about the Word of God. People say, I can be objective about what the Word of God says. No, it doesn't because it indicts you as a criminal, and me too, as a sinner, as an enemy of God. Until we are brought near by the blood of Christ, we see that God's love was poured out for us, that God took the wrath of God upon himself for us. We see faith comes through faithful teachers. Faith also celebrates truth. Celebrates truth. We're not trying to hide the truth. Indeed, we're trying to display it. Colossians had been confronted with serious theological error, and Paul is writing to correct it. Look at verse 5. He says, Of this you have heard before, the word of the truth, the gospel. What is Paul saying? Is that you've heard the true words of God, which is the truth, the personification of truth, which is Christ himself. That he is God's very definition of truth. That he is the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That he is the the embodiment, God's proclamation, his true statement. Even he is the logos, the word of God, God's true statement that speaks into the world. We are to celebrate truth. And all truth, all truth is God's truth. We need not be afraid of truth. We need not be afraid of science. When science is done properly, it will come alongside the gospel of God. It's when when theory is, is triumphed as truth where the problems come in. But we have no need to be a fear, afraid of any truth because it will only validate the gospel of God. See, this faith not only celebrates truth, but it connects us to the triune God. For all intents and purposes, we are functional modalists. What that means is, is we just look at God generally, not understand that God is triune, that there is a Godhead. There is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the three are one. There, we call them persons. They are the same substance, but a different subsistence. They have the same essence, but functionally, they separate and operate differently. We try to use different illustrations to justify it, but none are sufficient. Each one has an error in and of itself. The Trinity can't possibly be illustrated, so we are best left to the words of the, an Athanasian creed written in the 4th century. It says this, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. See, we see this actually within this passage when he says, the, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We, talk, we think God the Father. There is God the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the kurios. It's got a definite article in front of it. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is God himself. And we talk about the love of the Spirit, having the love in the Spirit of God in verse 8. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all evidenced within this passage that God is triune. When you hear some people say that Trinity is a work of the devil, you need to walk away. Because people that say that are modalists. They are denying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the very essence and image of God of which we are created. People say, what's the big deal? The gospel's at stake in how we live our life. Because God is triune. Jesus said, go and uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded to you. Yea, I am with you till the very end of the age. Now, it says, for we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son, and such as the Holy Ghost. The Father uncreated, 
the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated. The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. See, these are definitions that we would do well to meditate on. An ancient creed that was meant to systematize for people who can understand the being and nature of God. Because when we comprehend the being and nature of God, our thoughts and our minds are expanded. We understand the world in a greater way and how we function as adults. And I'll get to that in a moment. See, the Son is unlimited. The Holy Ghost is unlimited. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. God has no beginning and no ending. 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 And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. We are not tritheistic. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God revealed himself in three persons. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity or truth to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion. And Catholic here is not Catholic as we understand it with Roman Catholicism. This is written in the 4th century. There was one church. It means the universal church. So when you see the term Catholic in ancient documents such as these, it simply means the universal church as a whole before the church was divided. So we have the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons. One Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, all as aforesaid, the unity and Trinity, and the Trinity and unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved, let him think thus of the Trinity. Now, let me say as a as a caveat to this: all this is a man-made creation. This is not the holy scripture of God. This is man's best attempt to put together and categorize and systematically put together a statement of the very Godhead. And to see, it's when we understand the Godhead that we understand a lot of ourselves and how we are to live. Meaning this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three equal. The three are equal in and of themselves. They are what we call ontologically, which means in their essence they are one God. But they are functionally different where one subordinates or submits or surrenders to the other in that. But yet they are one God. It's a mystery beyond mysteries. But see, we see this illustrated within a husband and wife relationship. Though we are ontologically, in our essence, we are one people. We are equal together in and of Christ. But yet functionally, we must submit to one another. And it plays out in a lot of different things. When we see that the attack on the family, we're talking, attacking, in essence, the very being of God because it is of the Father of which every family is named in light of Him. Because the family is a representative of the very being and nature of God. And we are made in God's image. And this goes through everything else that we live in life. 
So we need to understand that we are connected to the triune God, that the Father purposed our salvation, the Son purchased our salvation, and then the Holy Spirit produces our salvation. And each one of the members of the Trinity are involved in bringing us into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we are just functionally like, I'll just say God right now. Don't know who to talk to. Jesus prays. Who does he pray to? The Father. The Father. We are to pray to the Father. He even lays that out to us. We're to pray to the Father. Father. Abba. And see, each one of the members of the Trinity is addressed even in a different, slightly different way because each one has their own particular function. So ontologically of the same or the same essence, God is of the same essence, can't divide the parts, and yet they are functionally different and subordinate to one another in operation in our lives. So we need to understand that, that Paul or this faith is connecting us to the triune God. But we go on. We go on. Look at verse 6. Because we see not what Paul is giving us is not mere information, but steps of transformation. Look at verse 6. Which has come to you. This gospel of God has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Now, of course, he's not referring to the, the farthest reaches of the hemisphere at that moment. It was to the more of the known world. But we see now that's been expanded where it is going all over the world because the gospel causes transformation all over the world. See, this faith causes transformation all over the world. He says it starts in you, but it's going to everywhere else. That God is doing what he said he would do. God's purposes and plan of redemption will come to fruition no matter what. His word will be fulfilled no matter what goes on around us, no matter what vile wickedness may be promoted, no matter what leaders do, no matter what sin a person gets involved in, God will accomplish his purposes and he will continue to bring about transformation. There, it seems, there are times when it seems that God's not at work. Where I wonder what's going on in a person's life or in the life of a church And then God has this tendency to surprise me, to show me that God has been working under the surface, transforming people's hearts. And it's not just here in Aurora, but it's in Asia, in South America, Africa, Oceania. That even when the church is being kept out, God is growing his church. China is boasting a massive church. This is a a country of over a billion people. And conservative estimates now have the church at 300 million people. Many of these are underground churches. These are people that are willing to give their life for the advancement of the gospel. They believe that they are to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. And they pointed us or Westerners and say, you can't do it. We will. Because we're willing to die for it. Hua Hyun, who is a man who had, uh, there's a book about him called The Heavenly Man. I've referenced that before. Uh, and this is a man who had been tortured greatly for his faith. And he was here in America. Matter of fact, he appeared at our Sugar Grove campus. He was at our Sugar Grove campus. Uh, doesn't speak very much English, um, but he ended up being at a conference nearby, not at our Sugar Grove campus, but a conference in the Chicagoland area. And someone heard that Joaquin was there, and they asked him to come forward and share a testimony. And he came up, and through his translator, he said, pray that we will not be like you, because we want to remain effective. God forgive us. Because he's right, we have more resources at our ability than ever before. We could take the gospel over the whole world, literally, just from right here. Even this message that I'm speaking now could be played in Russia and in India or in Malaysia or Indonesia. 
mean, we have such technological advances. We have to be good stewards of them and take the message of Christ to the entire world. And indeed, it is going throughout the world. And seeing how people's lives were transformed when I was in India and talking to individuals who had come out of Hindu backgrounds and how God had saved them and transformed them was inspiring to my heart. Or hearing the testimonies of many different Muslims who have had not had access to the gospel of God or to the Bible and hear how they have received visions and dreams and Christ has appeared to them and spoken to them and, and revealed himself to them and they've come to saving faith in Christ. Through that, God will bring his purposes to come to pass. And he is causing transformation all over the world. The question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, are we experiencing this transformation? And if not, why not? I was listening today to a, a message this morning as I was getting ready. It was Tim Keller, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He's written a book, that uh, just a recent book. It came out in November, and it's already proven uh, to be just a wonderful book on prayer. And he said, the reason that we don't pray is we're so distracted and we're afraid of being quiet, what God will say to us if we are quiet. We're so addicted. He said, if you were to go back a couple centuries, you had no choice but to be alone and be in solitude. Now it's the opposite. You can't get away. Whether it's our, And I'm, I'm just as guilty as anybody else. Carry my cell phone around. I can play a video on my phone or have noise in the car. And I don't like being away from noise for any period of time. And I have to quiet myself intentionally and get away. That's hard to do, very hard to do. But God's calling us to get away with him, to have that transformation, because he speaks his word to us, and it finds root in our soul. And we have to be quiet enough to meditate upon the truths of God's word, not just read it and walk away, but let it seep into the essence of our soul to change us from the inside out. The gospel causes transformation all over the world. Faith causes transformation all over the world. We have faith, but then we have hope hope. Notice verse 3 through 5. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, the word hope in Greek carries a slightly different meaning than our English word hope. Hope in our culture has the idea more of a wish or a desire. There it's more of an expected certainty. And it's interesting here that the term they have laid up, and the term literally means reserved for one, awaiting for him. It's a lot like this. When you have young children in the home, you bought their Christmas presents in advance, hopefully, not on the Christmas Eve. And what did you, I mean, as a kid, I, I, I knew my mom bought Christmas presents. I also knew where she hid them. And I would go and I would sneak into the bedroom, and I would pull open her, her closet, and I, I knew right where to look. I was a bad kid. My kid's not allowed to do that. And, and I would, and she got wise, though, because I would find the box. She learned that she had to wrap it early on. But I also learned how to unwrap it so she wouldn't know. I was a bad kid. But see, see, the present had been purchased. It was mine. I just had to receive it. See, that's the way it is here. It's understanding a hope that is laid up. It's waiting for us. It's already been purchased. We just have to wait to receive it. See, it's laid up for heaven. It's a living hope. It's the person of Christ and what he has guaranteed and all the promises that are in him because all the promises of God find their yes in him. We have faith, but then we have hope. Now, where do we get this hope? What's it based on? Is it based on myth? Legend? Superstition? No. This hope is 
This hope springs from the very gospel of God. Springs from the very gospel, the good news of God. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. It's the truth of who Christ is, that he died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He lived among us for 40 days, and he ascended into heaven after he had appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses, and that he awaits to come back to judge the living and the dead, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, meaning that redemption has been accomplished. When he said it is finished on the cross, he sat down. That shows that truly redemption has been, has been the price has been paid. We understand that we now have a living hope, and that hope is Christ, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, on page 1014. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that's not dead, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because why? Jesus is alive that He is our hope, that He conquered sin and death to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have a hope beyond this world, as Paul said, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a verse that I would really encourage you to write down. When you get discovered, I mean, when you get discouraged, when you get down, when you get depressed, when you see the wickedness going on around you, when you see your family members begin to sin, when you see your, sin, your children turn away from God and rebel, and you realize and people mock you for your faith, people say that you're foolish, that you're ignorant, that you're bigoted, that you're intolerant. When you, when you hear all that, go to this verse. Because this is Paul writing here, and he says in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope was just in this world, we deserve laughter. Then we're doing this all for nothing. We're buffeting our body and making our slaves for nothing. We're sacrificing our tithes and our offerings for nothing. But we see here that it's not for nothing, that it is for something, that our hope is a living hope. And this hope then spurs us on to growth. Spurs us on to growth. Notice the words in verse 6 again. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Bearing fruit and increasing. It's growing. They were growing. They had a desire to grow. They had a desire for holiness, the things of God. Do you have a desire for holiness in the things of God? Why don't you? In our meeting yesterday, we uncovered something very, very, in some ways, disturbing. Uh, the leaders, we were asking a lot of questions about uh, the series we just came off on of called Fit Church. As we were walking through these marks of a healthy church, we came to the subject of discipleship. Discipleship. And we asked the, the leaders that are there, how are we doing? And there were two responses. The first response was, we're doing good, and everything's going fine. We see it being done at the level we're here preached about. We, we see all this stuff. And then another person spoke up and said, no, I don't see that going on. Maybe I haven't been here long enough, but I see there's a disconnect. I, I don't see this going on. I hear about it, but I don't see it. See, what it was is we, saw, we noticed two things, and this was the, the, the conclusion of the group. 
that it was being done at the corporate level, let's say. At, we see it proclaimed in the services. We see the leaders doing it. But we see a drop-off between the leader and the congregation. The church is not doing it. The church is not taking people out and talking and doing life together and confronting with sin. Now, some are doing it. And those who are doing it, praise God for you. And I'm not saying that we're doing it. Those who are doing it, um, even as leadership, I'm not saying we're doing it perfectly. We can do much, much better. We have, we, even when we're teaching this, we have to make sure that it's being done. And we keep asking ourselves, what's the hard issue that's keeping people from truly building these transformative relationships with one another? Do you have a desire for growth? Or are you too busy, addicted to your own hobbies, your own habits? Are you just plain lazy? Are you so engulfed in entertainment that you can't even begin to comprehend the things of God? May God forgive us. We need to have a desire to grow to propel us on, to nurture us. See, another aspect of hope is not just that it spurs us on to growth, but it sustains us by grace. Sustains us by grace. Notice verse 6 again. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. See, the word for understood means to have knowledge of something, of someone, to know. It's in the indicative mood, aorist tense, an active voice. When it is in the indicative mood with an aorist tense, it indicates a past action, but the past action is undefined, which means that it could have happened just at once or it could have been progressively happened over time. But we know that it just happened. When it's coupled with the preposition, as in the case here, it carries the idea of knowing exactly, completely, through and through. And what is it they know? The grace of God. We need to know the grace of God. Without the grace of God, we have nothing. It's the very grace of God that, that helps us understand who we are, that God has given us his unmerited favor in and through Christ. We need grace to sustain us each and every day. Or as John Piper put it, we need to put our hope in future grace. Future grace. What is future grace? I mean, we need to make sure that we can't try to live our life to pay back God. Like, I'm, God, you did this for me. I'm going to pay you back. You can never pay God back. So you shouldn't try. We need to live in light of future grace. Future grace, then, is this. This is faith in future grace is the motive for obedience that preserves the gracious quality of human obedience. Obedience does not consist in paying God back and thus turning grace into a trade or a transaction. Obedience comes from trusting in God for more grace, future grace, and thus magnifying the infinite resources of God's love and power. Faith looks to the promise, I will be with you wherever you go, Joshua 1.9, and ventures in obedience to take the land. The biblical role of past grace, especially the cross, is to guarantee the certainty of future grace. In other words, we look back to the cross and how God, in essence, struck the ground and enabled the oil of grace to flow. We look back to that and we thank God for it, but we don't live there. We live in the understanding that that is God's salvation, yes, but it's to show that there's something else that's also coming and to live in light of that fact that we do have now grace and forgiveness in and through Christ, that his sacrifice was enough. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, that's past grace, how shall he not with him freely give us all things, future grace? By trusting in future grace is the motive and strength of our obedience. The more we trust in future grace, the more we give God the opportunity in our lives to show the glory of his inexhaustible grace. So take a promise of future grace and do some radical act of obedience on it. God will be mightily honored. See, we need grace every day. It is a gift that we have God's unmerited favor. 
And we will have it until the day that we go home to be with the Lord. Our hope is in the Christ who promises us future grace. Now, hope also shows us what has been guaranteed. I'm going to go through these last points rather quickly. Shows us what has been guaranteed. How many of you remember the men's warehouse commercials? Anybody remember those men's warehouse commercials? And you had George Zimmer at the end of it, and he goes, you're going to look good. I guarantee it. And what he was doing is he's saying, I'm the owner. I'm the guy who founded this company. I guarantee that you're going to look good. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. See, with, with, with what we have here, there's a hope laid up for heaven. God is guaranteeing it for us. And God is saying, by trusting in me and putting your hope in me, you're going to like the way you look in eternity. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. I love what you have, I have for you. It shows us a guarantee. It's a hope that is an unshakable hope. Satan cannot take it. The governor cannot legislate it. Police can't confiscate it. It's yours forever. No one can steal it, damage or destroy it. It is kept in heaven, and no one, not even the devil himself, can break in and damage it or take it from us. Our hope, is in, Christ, our hope in Christ shows us what has been guaranteed. Now, we've seen that we have a living faith, hope, and I take a guess what the third one is. Love. Faith, hope, and love. It's the triad. You see these graces or virtues displayed within different uh, gospels. They are themes that are running throughout the epistles, especially. As Paul said, um, the greatest, you know, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Is love. Look at verse 7 through 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. See, they had love for one another, they were known by their love. And we can see that this love emanates from the Spirit. Emanates from the Spirit. It comes from the Spirit of God, which means that we need to be then filled with the Spirit of God to love the way that God wants us to love. Now, the problem is is that we're leaky vessels and that we run on empty. And people say, I don't need the church uh, to be filled up. No, God, you, first of all, you're, you're arguing against God's Word because God's Word says that we are to not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but we are to meet more altogether as the, as the day approaches. That, not to say that's the only means of growing in grace, but it's where we get charged up. And it's just like your gas tank. You're going to leave this place today. You might go out to eat. You might drive around this week. Inevitably, you're going to need to get gas. Why? It's not because you're an evil person. It's because you're, you're going through life and you begin to run on empty. The same was with us, spiritually speaking. That we go forth, we might be filled up as we leave. We're excited about God. We're, we want to do what God wants to do. We've been blessed by being with God's people, enjoying His presence as we sing His praises, as we give our tithes and our offerings, as we meditate on the Word of God, as we observe communion. But as the week goes on, we're going to start emptying out. We need to be filled up again. And if we're true to love one another the way that God wants us to, then we need to continually be filled with the Spirit of God. This love emanates from the Spirit, and it also empowers the saints. It empowers the saints. Why does Paul thank God the Father? Because of their acts of faith. It encouraged him to hear what they were doing. It empowered him. They had love for one another. When we see that love being exhibited, it empowers us to do what God wants us to do. This love also extends to sinners. It extends to sinners. We're to love sinners. Paul is writing to the church of Colossae and telling them what happened the moment they were saved, that they could be able to understand the grace of God revealed in the gospel of God. Epaphras had planted the church in order because he wanted to show God's love. Just as we read today, we love because he first loved us. Now, I, I have a song uh, that 
I, I shared yesterday with our, our team uh, reminds us of the truth that we love because he first loved us because we think of the, the love of God. And it's a great old hymn. And, and it goes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. It's a great song. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. It's a great song. But the, 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 my favorite verse is this one. Could we think the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What a great song. The love of God love of God extends to the worst of sinners, of which we are. We are. But God's love extends unto us, this faith, hope, and love. And it propels us. And then it engages us for service. That's the last thing that it does. Epaphras had experienced this wonderful love of God through Paul's ministry, and then he goes and plants a church. It propelled him to reach out to his family and friends, the people that he was already at home with, to share the love of Christ, and a church was planted. See, here we stand with the holy virtues, faith, hope, and love. The strands of truth tied together to motivate us to live. It is greater than any cause. Indeed, it is the main motivation and help to our souls both now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this service, this opportunity to praise your name. May we continually be reminded of these graces, these virtues, faith, hope, and love knowing that even the greatest of these is love, Lord, that we can love because you first loved us. And Lord, we know that your love is so great. And we, if every stalk on earth were a quill and the ocean uh, were to be that ink, we would drain the ocean dry, thinking and meditating on how great your love is unto us. Lord, may this love that is upon our hearts, may it propel us forward, not as a means or a motivation to repay a debt, but is a means of understanding and living in light of future grace that your, the death of your Son has purchased and enabled for us. 
So Lord, please let us live in light of that truth. And Lord, if there's someone here today who has not yet trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins, may they place their faith in you. May they repent of their sins, place their faith in you, and commit their life to you, knowing that you are the sin forgiver and that you will save all of those who come to you in repentance and faith for the glory of your name. Lord, we rejoice in what your hands have done and what they're doing, not just in our church, but in the whole world. And we pray that you might do so more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.